there's so much expectation on founders. And like the last thing most founders are thinking about is like their own personal liquidity. They're just like everything back in the business, go, 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 paying myself as least about as possible, just keep it running. And I ran like that for so many years until I was really able to bring on, you know, someone in the C-suite that was able to kind of like stop and reflect, like you've been doing this a long time. Like you need to start thinking about like your own liquidity in this business and like how you're one, pulling yourself out of the weeds and really growing a brand that lives on without you. And so I think that's really important. That's something I really want to pass down to women is how to, you know, build amazing businesses, but not let them be your entire life and then grow from them and build your own personal wealth from the successes that you have. Jacqueline Johnson is a powerhouse entrepreneurista. By the time she was only 28 years old, she had already sold her first business and launched her second multi-million dollar business, Create and Cultivate. Create and Cultivate sold a majority stake to Corridor Capital in 2020. And to date, Jacqueline has had two eight-figure exits by the age of 35, and both companies were self-funded. In the process, Jacqueline's own work-life philosophy built on the cornerstones of hard work and innovation have propelled her voice to the forefront of the discussion of women in the workplace. Jacqueline currently serves as an advisor to startups and angel invest in women-owned businesses and recently launched her new venture capital fund, New Money Ventures. Tune in to hear more of her incredible story. Coming up, Jacqueline shares her path to accidental entrepreneurship, a behind the scenes look at the early stages of launching Create and Cultivate and the secret sauce that helps the company take off. Jacqueline shares her most challenging experiences while scaling her business, the process of selling a majority stake in Create and Cultivate. And finally, you'll learn about Jacqueline's new venture capital fund, New Money Ventures. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Jacqueline, we are so excited to finally sit down with you and have a conversation. I feel like this has been a long time coming. All of our worlds have just been colliding over many years. And here we are finally cannot wait to share your entire entrepreneurial journey and story because you have an amazing one to, to share and tell. So to start Jacqueline, I would love if you could take us back to the early days. Did you always know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? No, definitely not. I was leaning in hard to corporate life. You know, I definitely thought that was my path despite growing up in a family of entrepreneurs. My parents are small business owners, but it's, it's interesting. I was really on a path for corner office life. I went to NYU, had internships, worked at, you know, startups, big corporations, et cetera. And my sort of accidental entrepreneurship story comes from getting laid off from a job I had here in Los Angeles and then kind of struggling to find another job because of the industry difference between New York and Los Angeles, and then eventually starting my first business. I can definitely relate. I also went to NYU, grew up in a family of entrepreneurs and did not want to be an entrepreneur as well. So uh, we have a lot in common. What happened after you got laid off? How did you fall into entrepreneurship, as do you say? 
So I was in Los Angeles, like newly in Los Angeles, maybe three or four months. And I had transferred at the existing company I was at and was let go. And basically my expertise at the time was really social media marketing around specifically fashion, beauty, lifestyle brands. And this is 2009. This is like early days. And basically the industry in Los Angeles at the time was heavily entertainment or gaming. And what I was doing really only existed in New York City, um, or at least that's where the bigger hubs were. And so as I was applying for jobs in like marketing at Sony or marketing at Paramount, everyone's like, you have zero experience in film or entertainment. So we're not going to hire you. You have zero experience in gaming. So I was really struggling to find a job. And so I did what a lot of people do is I just like emailed my network and said, Hey, this is what happened. I'm looking for freelance work. If you have any clients, et cetera. And I was really lucky in that I was able to get a number of freelance clients to help support me. But I was also sort of in this position where I was new to a city working from home, which now feels so normal but like not meeting anyone, not out there. And so I started networking and then eventually got an office space with a bunch of other creatives and kind of eventually somehow started my first agency company, which was called No Subject. When you first started taking on these clients, what were the services that you were specifically offering them? Yes. So it was primarily social media marketing and or social media management. So I was, I managed Bed Bath & Beyond's Facebook page at one point, Folica, which was like a Sephora competitor. Like I was doing all sorts of things. And so I was creating like automations and auto responses for like Bed Bath. Again, this is like, makes me sound 150 years old because it, it was so long ago, but like creating automated responses for them, how to like escalate things, escalation policies, content calendars, like all of those kinds of things. And that's how the business really started. It was like peak community management time because none of these larger corporations had any idea how to do social media. And so they were like, we need to rely on these experts of which there were like 20 of us at the time to kind of help us craft those strategies. We were definitely in the early days with you having started Social Fly back. It was 2011 on the side of our full-time job, like super early days and then 2012 full-time. And we still remember like basically going door to door selling social media services because brands, businesses didn't really understand that they needed to not only have a presence, but that was the way they were going to reach their customers. How did you get some of your first clients? You mentioned Bed Bath & Beyond. Like that's obviously a very large brand and having just started your own business, like how did you get in the door there? So basically I kind of, I guess I went through the back door, I guess is a good way to put it because all of my clients were in agencies already, like bigger agencies. And so they would bring me on as a freelancer through their agency to then work with clients like that. So it wasn't like they were hiring my agency outright. Once the agency grew, so I had that company for around seven, eight years, like I think year four, year five, we had our, we had a good footprint and a good case study and a good threshold. And that's when we were able to have our own clients, which were like Urban Decay, L'Oreal Paris. We worked with Microsoft, Dell. Um, so we were working with big, big clients, but we had established ourselves, I think, by that point. Um, and really, I think Urban Decay was like one of our first big, big clients. And we were doing influencer seating, marketing campaigns and events for them. And so the business this kind of transition from like community management more to like the influencer, like more straightforward digital marketing space. I know you exited that business. Can you walk us through that process? Who did you sell to? 
Yeah, definitely. So I, um, I, if you told me like, are you going to sell your business when I was running that business? I'd be like, I don't even know how to do that. Like I wasn't even on my radar, but basically what happened was I was connected to small girls PR, which is a PR firm out of Brooklyn. It's run by two young women at, you know, at the time we were all kind of in the same age range, they were a bit younger than I am. And basically people kept introducing us and saying, these girls are like the you in New York, like you're doing what they're doing, but they're doing it in New York, et cetera. And we just always had a really great friendly relationship. They'd pass me new business. I'd pass them new business. We'd talk, you know, shop, like, what are you charging? What are you thinking about this? All that kind of good stuff. And just kind of had a friendly um, relationship in the space. And then essentially they wanted to grow their business and expand into Los Angeles. And, you know, it really happened organically where they were like, you know, we love you. We don't want to compete with you. And, and you have a good thing going. Like, are you looking for more infrastructure? Cause they were much larger than we were. I think we were maybe five, six people at the time. And they were 30 plus had full HR departments, you know, a much bigger operation. And it felt like a natural, you know, kind of exit and end to that story. Whereas like, I knew I didn't want to run a 30 person agency, and I knew that they had won an amazing reputation, an incredible pipeline of business. What we did was very complimentary. They were very PR centric. We were very events and influencer centric, just felt like a natural kind of fit. Um, so that's really how the first acquisition happened. And so they acquired the business, took over our LA office, took on our clients and employees, and I stayed on board for a year after. How did you figure out how to structure that type of deal, having not had that experience in the past? Did you have outside advisors or an investment banker that you brought in to help with the process? So not for that deal. I didn't have an investment banker or anything like that. I had a really good lawyer. So I had a lawyer that I've known for a long time, actually based out of Miami. So Courtney, I should definitely introduce you. But um, we were really good friends and he had done deals like this a lot. So he really helped me you know, kind of spearheading what to ask for, how to do all the due diligence, which was like a nightmare. And I was like, what is all of this? Um, but I, it was, we were lucky in that, you know, I ran the business as a cash business. It was pretty straightforward. We had our service lines, we had our retainers, we had our employee, like it was a super straightforward business. It wasn't as complicated as say like a create and cultivate is where you, you know, there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of revenue streams, a lot of employees, things like that. So for this one in particular, it was really legal that helped me kind of put together what I should be asking for, how we should shape the deal, what felt fair in terms of like evaluation and things like that. And how did Create and Cultivate come into the story and into the picture? <laughs> so Create and Cultivate really happened going through that experience of running the agency. So I was going through a lot of, you know, issues. I always say that first company was like a masterclass in how to run a business because it was like, I learned all the lessons. Um, and really, you know, it was one of those things where I felt like, oh, I want to like see if there's other women out there having the same issues I'm having or having the same problems. So basically I got together a group of women and was like, hey, let's all get together. Let's have these conversations. And it started as 25 women at the Ace Hotel in Palm Springs and then became this much larger than life thing than I could ever imagine. Did you put together a business plan for Create and Cultivate? No, no business plan. And, and from really like the first one, which was like 2012, I would say until 2016, it didn't really make any money. It was a complete side project or 2015, I should say complete side project. It was just like run through the agency. I was treating it as a new business tool, like connecting with influencers, et cetera. Some of the sponsorships were, you know, paying for them. Like it was paying for the event, but like covering costs at best. And then they're just starting to get so much momentum around it to the point where people were like, 
that's your business. That's your brand. And I was like, really? Like, I don't know. Like I have this other thing. I know how to do that. It's like very straightforward. And then I kind of took a step back and was like, oh yeah, this could be something bigger. And then in 2015, I invested my own money personally. I brought in a business partner. She invested money personally. And we just said like, let's give it a year. Let's see what happens. And so we invested in the company and it was a rocket ship. It took off faster than we could have ever imagined. And even to like up until the very end, we didn't have a business plan. We had a strategy of what we wanted to do, but there was no formalized plan or five-year plan or outlook or anything like that. What did you do in the first year in that business that when you started focusing on it, that really made it take off when you say it took off like a rocket ship? I think the secret sauce that we had was that I early days was, was considered quote unquote, an influencer. I had a blog. Um, it had a lot of followers, like all these different things. And I was going to a ton of different influencer events, right. And like posting about it and like these gorgeous events and flower walls and gift bags and delicious food and all these things. And my sister actually, you know, who's a wedding photographer in Florida was like, that looks amazing. Like, I wish I could go to some events like that, or I wish we had events like that. And it kind of clicked in me that we can create really beautiful premium experiences coupled with providing incredible speakers and advice and kind of flip the idea of a conference on its head because conferences don't need to be hosted in conference rooms. You know, I think it's really about creating that experience. And so that was really my approach for creating Cultivate was creating this luxe experience for the everyday consumer who wanted to up-level their life and business. And at the time, now that feels very obvious. There's a lot of different events that do that, but at the time, no one was doing that. And I think that's what really set us apart, coupled with the fact that Instagram was like peak taking off and everyone was posting and sharing photos from the events. And it created this like air, like level of FOMO that helped us like leverage and grow our business quickly. How did the business evolve over time? What is the business now versus what it, what was it in that first year? Yeah. So we were experiential first at the beginning. Like that is what we did. But one thing we did that was very different than other events or I should say conference businesses is that most conference companies at the time would launch and then go quiet until their next event and then like launch and go quiet. And we launched and then we created content around everything that was happening at those events. So the content from event A would get us to event B and we would leverage everything from those different events to kind of keep our community engaged and tuning in. And by circumstance became a media company. And so we had this content side of the business as well and was growing that simultaneously to the event business. Then we diversified, we launched our book, which is called Work Party and subsequently the podcast Work Party. So we got into more of the podcast game and, and building out this sort of sub-brand around the podcast and book. We also got into products. So we had a licensing deals with Target um, as well as Echo. And we launched a vegan leather goods line, office supplies, all that good stuff. And then we started doing more bespoke events. So what we realized was, and this is this was interesting, is we were doing these conferences, right? Like two a year, three a year, four a year, whatever. And brands started coming to us. And I think the first brand actually was Marriott um, Hotels. And they were like, we love creating Cultivate. It's so beautiful. It's so amazing. Your audience is awesome. But like, we want you guys to bring your audience to Marriott, right? Like we just remodeled and redid all these different Marriott's and they're, they're, rebuilt for the new modern business traveler. So we want you guys to bring that there. And so I was basically like, oh, interesting. Like we can do an event for you at the Marriott. And so we, we launched our first quote unquote bespoke event with them. And so essentially that launched our bespoke service line. And from there, we started doing events with brands outside of the existing conferences. 
That's so interesting. So as the business grew and evolved, you were obviously having to scale your business, hire new people, figure more things out as you went along. What would you say was the most challenging part of growing your business so quickly? I think the most challenging part of growing the business was figuring out how much bandwidth the team would have and how much business we would get. And so we were in a business not where we like sell a specific product or we're seeing an upsells, we have to buy more product. We're in the service business, right? So creating the team to match the needs was really, really challenging. And being able to scale quickly was really hard. We really had to figure out our freelance contractor game very quickly to enhance and grow our business fast. Because it wouldn't make sense for a company like ours. Obviously, we have our employees and, and they're amazing and they run their different divisions. But to scale up because we get one big client with, with salaried employees wouldn't make sense because after that event's done, they have nothing to work on potentially. Or maybe they do and we just didn't know. But you don't know. That's It's the not knowing of it all. So we were able to really build out the, the freelancer side of our business fast so that we could service and grow quickly. But that was a really challenging time to figure out that sort of secret sauce of like how, to, how many people to hire while still making your clients happy while still hitting your margins. You are speaking our language. Uh, that is the constant, we call it a game of Tetris. Uh, since totally. We run, run an agency and have been for the last 10 years. You mentioned you did this with a business partner. So uh, what did you focus on and what did she focus on? I had a few business partners by the end of it. They were all silent partners. So they all didn't really partake in the day-to-day, but they were more strategic and they would help me grow the business like over time. So for instance, my partner in the business um, initially was Raina Panchansky. She is the CEO of DBA, which is one of the largest digital talent agencies. And she was the one that was really pushing me like, this should be your business. This should be your brand, blah, blah, blah. Got to the point where, you know, she was like, look, I have access to talent. Like I can help you like bring in the talent that you need for these events. And so early on, we were able to get access to talent that otherwise we wouldn't have access to. Um, And then further down the line, we brought on um, a partner called Blended Strategy, which is run by Allison Stouter and Sherry Joir, who are two powerhouse awesome um, individuals. And they were able to help us bring in more clients and more sponsors. So it was more of like a strategic partner versus day-to-day in the business. How did you structure those type of partnerships? Were they coming in as business partners for equity? Were they putting in capital? And how did you figure out what was fair? Yeah. So no one put money into the business. Raina initially put in money. We both paid ourselves back from the money that the company made. So it was essentially completely self-funded. So it was sweat equity for services in in that way. So they were able to provide certain services and get equity in exchange. And when did you realize, wow, we've built something here that is potentially sellable? So having sold my first business, going into Create and Cultivate, I knew I was going to build this company to sell. Like, so it was a little bit of a different mentality. And when you're building something to sell, there's a couple different things you want to think about. Like one is you want to retain as much equity as possible, because obviously that's where you're going to make the most money at the end of the day. And then two is you want to run it as lean and profitably as possible as well, because that's what's going to get you in the door with, you know, people who are excited to acquire you. It's a very viable business. So we approached it that way from day one. And so when it was time to sell was really when... And we saw like to create and cultivate 2.0, like the business was growing at a rapid pace. We had been able to weather COVID very successfully and still show profitability. 
And we knew we had now kind of exponentially grown our digital side of the business and obviously our event side of the business would come back. So we were at this place where we knew it was going to require both a partner, a capital partner, and sort of a new life, right? So that's when we started realizing we wanted to go out to sale. We also had offers throughout the years and like nothing really kind of made sense or fit. Um, and so it was the right time to kind of look into what the next you know, chapter of Crate and Cultivate would be. Are you still involved in Crate and Cultivate after you sold it? Yeah. So I'm still the founder and vice chair. We brought on a new CEO, which we'll be announcing like soon, which is really exciting. And she is so incredible. Like I couldn't have literally like made her in a lab more perfectly for the role. Um, so I'm really, really excited about sort of this new chapter under her leadership. Was it hard to let go, you know, when selling the company, did you sell the whole company or majority stake? Majority stake. Yeah. Okay. Was that hard, you know, giving up you know, some of your business and what you created to someone else, or was it more of an exciting time? Like, wow, we built this, we did it, got paid out for all of our hard work. <laughs> it was really hard. I mean, it was funny. There was moments where I think I was like excited about it. And then we started getting interviews with some of like the coolest, most badass women in the industry who wanted this job. And I was like, am I an idiot for like not doing this? But I knew I was I had to tap out for a number of different reasons. One is that the, the company needed fresh perspective and fresh insight, right? After like 10 years of running something, I am in my head, I've like basically automated how everything works. Like this is how we launch, this is how we do this, this is how we do that, which is great. But as we lean more into a media business, which is not my expertise, like I don't know the answers to all those different things. I haven't grown and scaled a content or membership business before. And so bringing someone in who had done that successfully was the right move for the business and the company to like bring in that new expertise and new energy was the right move. And also like, I know where I best serve the company. I am helpful on the podcast. I'm good as the face. I'm happy to like, I love helping with talent and creative. Like those are where I really shine. And now that the company's big enough, that's a lot, like that's a lot to take on. So having a partner, you know, that is an incredible CEO, has the expertise is, is really actually exciting for me now. I think now that we found her, I'm really excited, um, but definitely had a few moments where I was like, I'm giving this up. What am I doing? But I think that's natural. You know, I think it's a natural evolution. How did you find her? Did you use a recruiter? Some Is she someone you've known for a while? Recruiter. Yeah, we used a recruiter because recruiting for a CEO is such a specific role. And, you know, you really need to find people who honestly probably already have a job. So it's kind of challenging to like figure out that mix of like the type of person. And we were looking for someone so specific, like, understands media, understands talent, understands marketing, leans into experiential, like all those different facets. So it's like, it's really challenging type of person to find. I remember we had an episode of the podcast with Holly Thaggard, founder of Supergroup, And she was talking about this exact, exact same thing and how they had to focus on recruiting for a CEO and then finally finding that right person. So I've definitely heard this before and really good advice to share because I know a lot of our listeners are in the, in the same position or will be at some point and definitely really great advice. It's such a crucial role. Can you share a little bit about your interview process and how, how long it was? Yeah. So, I mean, it took at least four months, I would say four to five months. 
the interview process is long. There's case studies involved. Like they have to create their case for the business and like what they would do and how they would approach it. Obviously they meet with a ton of different people. Like they meet with me, they meet with our partners on the private equity side. They meet with key C-suite executives, um, you know, just kind of get like the vibe and things like that. But what I found was like, we connected and we just started texting and we just became like buds and we're texting a lot about the business. She would send me ideas. I would tell her what was going on. And I felt like our energies were really aligned on like what we wanted to do for the company. So it was, it was definitely one of those things where it just felt extremely kismet, like the way that we wanted to approach things. So now you have a new venture that you've started, New Money Ventures. I would love to hear what inspired you to now start this next venture. Yeah, so New Money Ventures is a $20 million consumer fund focused on funding the next generation of female entrepreneurs or female founded or led businesses. What really kind of sparked this whole thing was having run Creighton Cultivate for the past 10 years, obviously I think we really nailed community and conversation getting women together, having those hard-hitting, honest, and raw conversations, giving them access to these amazing individuals to help further their business. But the underlying thing that kind of happened or was discussed at every single Create and Cultivate was like the need for capital. We all know the stats, like 2% of VC funding goes to women-led businesses, less than 1% for women of color. But a stat that I found equally as compelling and depressing, I should say, is that only 5% of venture capital firms are run by women. So when you look at where the money's coming from and where the money's going, it makes sense, right? Like people invest in what they know. And a huge part of VC funding is deal flow. Like you're getting deals from your network. And so if you're, if you're a 65 plus year old white guy, your network is very specific and like you're getting deals from within that network. And so for me, I felt like it was really important to kind of take what I had access to and bring it to the next level by infusing capital into those, into those women that I, I had access to. I'd been angel investing for 10 plus years, had seen a lot of success in that, had also mentored a lot of amazing leaders and working with them on building their businesses. And so it was really taking that and bringing it to that next level. How do you decide what to invest in? So we have criteria that we specifically lean into. First and foremost is the founder. Like when you're investing in a business, you are essentially investing in the founder, their vision, you know, that genesis qua that they have that is going to take this business to the, to the next level. And then we also look for businesses that are really disrupting industries, whether they're solving problems or filling the space, understanding what their, you know, unfair advantages in what they're creating is really important to us. And then lastly is profitability. Like we really want to find businesses that are running really smart, really lean companies that are, you know, focusing on profitability or having a path to profitability. What stage do you get involved? So we're actually stage agnostic. So we invest pre-seed, seed, series A, series B. We also have a part of the fund that's called the brand studio where we create our own brands. So we create and invest and staff against an idea that we have. All right. So tell us what makes a really great pitch. Many of the members oh, yeah. of the Penisa League community are thinking about raising fun funding. They're on the path to raising funding and they're always looking for advice about what makes a great pitch, especially now over Zoom because the world has changed a bit in terms totally. of uh, pitch meetings. Yeah. I would say first and foremost, like a really strong deck, having a deck that not only tells your story, in words, but visually is really important. So, you know, we see a lot of decks, but those ones that like kind of really stand out to you and, and show what the brand is made of, I think is really important. Two is like having a clear ask, like 
here's where we're at, here's where we're going, here's why we need the money. And having a specific use of funds, I think is really important and, and smart. So if you can't speak to like why you're raising $5 million, like that's a red flag, I would say for sure. I would also say, you know, being able to speak to all sides of the business, whether it's marketing, financial, um, brand. And if you aren't able to having that person with you, whether it's your CFO or whatever, that can also tell both sides of the story, I think is really important. And then lastly, I would say is a next step is like coming in to it with a specific ask and then moving on to that next step. So sometimes we meet with people and it's like, okay, great. Okay, great. And then we like never hear from them again. There's no follow-up. There's no like next step. So really going into it with that clear next step for sure. Do you look for the founders to follow up with you first after that first meeting? Definitely depends on the kind of the ask. Like typically there's like, if there's interest on both sides, there's like an NDA that gets exchanged and there's a deeper dive, but yeah, you definitely want the founders to be following up and be excited about being with you. Like you don't want to be chasing someone to invest in their company, which can happen sometimes. Who are you most excited about that you've recently invested in? Oh, we have so many good ones. I would say one that I'm really excited about is K-Skin. It's Winnie Horlow's new Sun Caroline. It's an incredible product. The product's amazing, especially you guys living in Florida. You definitely need to check it out. It gives your skin this like beautiful shimmer and it's really made for everyday wear. So like for me, sunscreen, I feel like I really focus on it when I'm like going to the beach or laying out by the pool, but like every day I'm really bad. I'm like haphazardly, like maybe I'll throw it on. Maybe I won't. This product feels like literal lotion and it looks gorgeous. And it also provides obviously SPF coverage, which is amazing. So I'm really excited about that brand. We also have dough, D-E-U-X, which is good for you cookie dough. So it's functional cookie dough with ashwagandha and maca, and it is so delicious. And they've dropped some really cool collabs with like summer Fridays and other brands. So they're a really cool brand to follow. I need to try that one. I'm definitely familiar with K-Skin. I actually use it and met Sandra in Miami because she lives down here. So. I was going to say, you must know Cass. She's amazing. Yes. She's definitely a hired gun for that company. And she's definitely one of the reasons we invested. Yes. And she's in the Entrepreneurista League. So yay, love that. What would you say are the biggest mistakes you see when people are pitching? I think, well, a few different things. One, I, one of my biggest pet peeves, to your point being on Zoom, is people who don't join with video. It's really hard to gauge a reaction or a sense of a person when you're like not able to see it. So definitely make sure you're on video. That's first and foremost, especially if everyone else is on video. I would say also going into it with like a, I don't need your money. Like a lot of these startups are very, getting funded very easily. There's a lot of money out there, of course, but kind of coming into it a little hot being like, well, we're oversubscribed. We might be able to squeeze you in. Like great, that's great for you. That's great for your business. But at the end of the day, every opportunity should be treated as if you need that cash, right? Like you're coming into it with that expectation of like, you might need this investor down the road. You might need their money. Someone might fall through. That stuff happens all the time. So I think going into it with more of an attitude of like, being excited to be in the room is really important, important as well. Um, and then, like I said, just having the right people on the call. Like if you cannot speak to the marketing side of your business or the financial side of your business, and you have those people on your team, bring them into the mix to be able to really communicate and vocalize what you're doing in those areas. Like the weight of the world doesn't need to just be on you because you're the founder. What is the accomplishment you are most proud of to date? I think the biggest accomplishment that I have, and, and I didn't even realize this until someone pointed it out to me, but I had sold two companies by 35, which was really incredible. Like I was really, really proud of that. Like when I sold no subject, that was kind of a surprise. I knew I wanted to sell Crate and Cultivate and I just, you know, I didn't know how that would like end up looking, but I was really proud of that fact, you know, that I was able to really build those things, grow them and sell them. 
What do you want your legacy to be? I think my legacy is like pretty clear at this point in terms of like where I'm leaning into, right? Like I love helping women and I love helping women build businesses, grow businesses, and also create generational wealth for themselves. I think that's something that not a lot of women talk about. I think even for me, like running Create and Cultivate, you know, found there's so much expectation on founders. And like the last thing most founders are thinking about is like their own personal liquidity. They're just like everything back in the business, go, 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 paying myself as least about as possible, just keep it running. And I ran like that for so many years until I was really able to bring on, you know, someone in the C-suite that was able to kind of like stop and reflect, like you've been doing this a long time. Like you need to start thinking about like your own liquidity in this business and like how you're one pulling yourself out of the weeds and really growing a brand that lives on without you. And so I think that's really important. That's something I really want to pass down to women is how to, you know, build amazing businesses, but not let them be your entire life and then grow from them and build your own personal wealth from the successes that you have. Yeah, we are definitely aligned and and feel the same way. Uh, Can you share a story where you made a mistake or faced a really big challenge and how did you approach it? Oh my God, there's so many. I mean, I think the biggest one for me was, you know, my first company, no subject. I had a business partner when we launched the company and we ended up having a business partner breakup, which at the time was extremely devastating. We were really young. Our friends groups were intermingled and we really had horrible legal documentation of our partnership. Like I think we printed it off legal zoom. There was no delineation in our roles and the company grew really fast. And we ran into issues on the financial side of like how we were dealing with money. We had different perspectives of how money should have been handled the business. And these things happen all the time, but at the time it felt like it was like only happening to me. And I think a lesson I really learned was like being really diligent with how you set up your company and investing in the legal help you need to set yourself up for success. And that doesn't mean something bad is going to happen like every single time, but it does mean like you need to pay attention to how your business is doing, how it's growing. And if you need to change what that documentation looks like over time, your role might change. Their role might change. They want out of the business. You want in on the business. Having those things legally set up ahead of time to have those conversations and tee up everyone for success is so important. That is so true. We were just talking about this on our other podcast, Startups and Stilettos, yesterday with one of our entrepreneurs who just went through a business breakup. So we literally just had this conversation talking about the foundation of your business really is everything and building that whole framework and making sure, especially in a business partnership, that you're on the same page, you have the same vision and just making sure all of those documents are set up. So for entrepreneurs listening, if you're thinking about starting a business and with a business partner, get all of those documents set up in the beginning. All right, Jacqueline, this is a fun little segment we like to do. A few rapid fire questions. So the first word or words that come to your mind, are you ready? Yes. All right. Describe yourself in three words. I would say resilient, energetic, and loyal. What are you currently reading? I have no time to read. I I listen to podcasts like I don't necessarily read. And when I do read, I'll say this. Sorry, I know this is rapid fire. I don't read business books. I like, I go true crime. I'm like in a whole day. Cause I'm like business all day long. I should, we should have changed that question. Favorite podcast you're listening to besides your own. <laughs> I would say I'm diving deep into the dropout right now and watching the show at the same time and really enjoying both of those. What is your favorite app on your phone? Ooh, actually I have a good one for this intro. Have you guys heard of this? 
So Intros is app, it's pretty new. I think newly launched has incredible investors as part of the platform, but it allows consumers to book time with experts, 15 minute slots. So you can book like Alexis Ohanian's on there, Rachel Zoe's on there, Nate Burgess is on there, and I'm on there. I just joined it and I'm doing it for charity. So I'm doing it month, um, a few times slots a month for charity and I've just loved it so much and I get to meet with such cool women. So yeah, it's been fun. Awesome, very cool. Favorite business tool or solution that you've used to grow your business or businesses? Definitely, I would say, I mean, I feel like this is sort of an obvious one, but one that I actually really like was Slack. Like, I think it has streamlined our communication so much. And when you're doing event production, like a thousand emails fly back and forth. And Slack is just a great way to like store documents, have conversations, segment out the people who don't need to hear what you're talking about. We are big Slack fans. So definitely agree with that. Iced or hot coffee or tea? Iced for sure. I run super hot, like all the time. Like in the middle of winter, I'm like, put the AC on. <laughs> Finally, what is your hidden talent? Ooh, hidden talent. I would say cooking maybe. I'm, I've gotten really good at cooking and I really enjoy it. And I feel like people don't ever expect that. Um, it's definitely become like a really fun hobby. Back to regularly scheduled programming. What does a typical day look like for you? So a lot of it's email. So I'm just kind of in front of my computer, either doing podcasts, answering emails, taking pitches via Zoom or in person these days, which is really nice. Um, and then I usually try to work out in the morning and then have either dinner at home or, or dinner out with friends or colleagues. What is a mantra that you live by? I think this too shall pass. I think that's like a really important one, especially as an entrepreneur, when you feel like your business is on fire, and you're like nothing's going right. Everything will work out. Everything will happen for the right reasons. Like it's definitely important, an important one. How have you found time to balance or manage your personal life? I know you mentioned your husband before also managing multiple businesses with an exit, starting something new. Like how do you manage and balance your time? So I would say for a long, long time, I did not manage it well. I definitely was like hustling my face off, working, you know, thousand plus hour weeks. It felt like traveling left and right and really COVID and, you know, the stay at home orders changed a lot for me. Being home that much was a, a completely new experience, being able to actually have time to like cook dinners and work out and things like that. And then really understanding that like, I could do these things. I just, in my mind was think I'm too busy. I can't, I can't, I got to get start working. I wake up at 6am immediately answering emails and like doing things like that. But really like, you know, for anyone out there that's feeling that way. Yeah, definitely. That's part of it. That's part of growing a business. But the other part of it is like, you can squeeze in the workout. Like the world's not going to end. Your business isn't going to fail because you took 30 minutes to like do something for yourself. So I think that's just like an important lesson I learned. What do you like to do for fun? For fun, I mean, I love cooking dinner with friends. I'm like a big natural wine enthusiast. So like getting into the wine, you know, things I'm training to be a sommelier with like one of my friends, which is really fun. I'm trying to be a better cook. I'm actually taking a pasta making class tomorrow, which will be fun. And then of course, traveling. Where's your favorite place to travel to? Ooh, I would say I love Italy. I luckily, I went to Italy last year. I went to Puglia, Tuscany, Rome, and my husband and I went for our honeymoon years before that. I just, you can't go wrong with Italy. What are you most grateful for every day? I would say like, I think my health, like, I think that's a really important one, especially after the last few years, like it's been 
you know, an intense few years for everyone. But I think that's also part of the reason why I wanted to start taking care of myself is like, you can't get back those years of like barely sleeping, working all the time. It definitely takes a toll. So I would say my health. And what final business tip do you have for our listeners? who are just starting their business. Ooh, I would say lean into failure. I think failure feels scary. It feels like the end of the world for your business. But when you start to reframe what failure is and just start to think of it as truly feedback or data points on like which direction to go in, how to pivot your business and where to go next, like it'll become a lot more palatable and a lot easier for you over time. I love that. I say learning lessons. Everything is a learning lesson, turning every no into an opportunity to, to figure things out. So I completely agree. And both of us have just loved talking with you. And I feel like we could sit here and chat for hours and hours about everything from business to, to Florida. But final question for you, what does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? I think it means being able to create your career on your own terms. I think that really is what's important here is like, not that you have to do this or do that or run, like you're doing it on your own terms. Like you're figuring it out and making the decisions for yourself. And I really think that level of independence is important for women. Absolutely. Jacqueline, thank you again for being here and sharing your story. You're so excited to continue all of our collaborations ahead and can't wait to follow your journey now with new money ventures as well. Where can everyone find you and follow you? Yeah. So I'm at Jacqueline R. Johnson on Instagram at work party for the podcast at create and cultivate for our events and then at new money ventures for the fund. What's the best place for entrepreneurs to reach out to you who are interested in having a conversation to pitch their business? Yes. So I would say DMs are good and, or on new money ventures, we do have an area where you can pitch your business. So definitely check that out. Thank you, Jacqueline. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entrepreneurista.com and connect with us on Instagram at Entrepreneistas. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entrepreneista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to entrepreneista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead.